the truth that God said uh, that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Amen. And he promised that he would be with us even until the end of the world. Uh, happy Mother's Day. There is an old saying that the song that a mother sings to a child in the cradle, that child would carry with them until the grave. Mothers have an incredible, incredible uh, call to, to care for children's anointing to care for children. And uh, there's, there's very... A few ways that we can be loved more than in the love of a mother. And today we want to salute all of our mothers. Um, In the African-American experience, mothers, the mother's role is is probably amplified uh, more than any other ethnic group in America. Uh, Since 1616, when the first African slaves uh, reached the shore of uh, Virginia, we have seen that blacks um, and African-Americans have had just an incredible uh, struggle uh, with family because of the institution of slavery, because of Jim Crow, uh, because of the things that we've had to overcome. Uh, Mothers have played uh, more of a pivotal role uh, than probably any ethnicity because of those pressures that were on men and the way that these institutions uh, really weighed on fathers. So when we say Happy Mother's Day, um, as African-American males, uh, to our mothers and to our wives and to you, we say that with a deep appreciation, knowing that more has been on your backs uh, than, than probably any, any other group of mothers. Um, and it touches us. And for the husbands and sons today um, that uh, will gather with their mothers and with their wives, I pray that you will uh, just love on your wife and love on your mother like never before. Um, If uh, we, the best thing that a father can do for a child is love their mother. So if it's one of those Mother's Days where you didn't have anything planned, or I just want to encourage you uh, in between church and a break to, to become creative. Amen. To become creative. If you could stand to your feet with your Bibles in your hand and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And to those who are here today, um, Mother's Day may be tough for you. Uh, maybe you grew up with a mother who was abusive. Maybe you're dealing with infertility. Uh, maybe you feel some guilt or shame over uh, a waste opportunity to, to be a good mother in the past. Whatever you're going through today, and whatever may make today difficult, I want you to know that we sit with you, and that we acknowledge your pain, and that we praise God for you, because Jesus is here with you, and he loves you, and we're here, here with you as well. And we want to acknowledge you. And we want to praise God for those who are mothers of foster children and who have adopted children. And we want to celebrate you this morning as well. So when we say motherhood, we say it with a wide continuum. And we we step into whatever situation you are with you this morning. Amen? Let's turn our attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Today we're going to look at verse 9 through 11, and what you hold in your hand is the very word of God, um, and we want to, to treasure it in our hearts today. The word says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 
Today we want to tag this text, A Testimony of Transformation. A Testimony of Transformation. Let's pray. Uh, Gracious Father, we thank you uh, this day for your word. I pray that you would uh, visit us as we uh, hear your word. Help us to not just be hearers of your word, but doers. Father, I pray that you would speak in a way, Lord, that would transform our lives and allow us to see that you have given us, as Christians, a testimony of transformation. I thank you, Father God, for all of our mothers here today. Thank you, Father God, for all their hard work. Thank you, Father God, for all their dedication, for all the things that you've brought them through. I pray that you will bless them with your word today and allow them to leave this place encouraged and inspired and ready to run more for you. you. Thank you, Father for the blessing of community and allowing us to be able to engage you through the way that we listen, the way that we learn. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There are a uh, lot of books and even movies that are surfacing about heaven. Here recently, we see that a movie came out about heaven, and um, it has drawn a lot of attention to itself, and Hollywood is, is beginning to see that this is a, 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 a hot topic that can be put on a movie screen or, or written about that will make people draw to it. And with the popularity of these books and with the popularity of these movies, um, we also see that there is a lot of confusion about heaven. If you ask five people the question, who is going to make it to heaven? You will probably get five different answers. Because everyone has their theory, everyone has their thought about who will make it in. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11, Paul seeks to bring clarity to this issue. Paul seeks to to bring clarity to the church of Corinth by letting them know who will enter in or who will be in heaven. In chapter 6, verse 1 through 8, we see that the apostle Paul is addressing the church at Corinth over a serious issue. The church at Corinth were taking each other to court and suing each other. As Christians, they were bringing up lawsuits left and right against each other. And Paul says to the church at Corinth, he says, I I dare you. And he challenges them and, and tells them that this is not the way that Christians ought to act. This is not the way that Christians ought to behave. As Christians, our testimony to the world should be a testimony that says we have been transformed. We are different than you. We handle our disputes in a different way, not a testimony that says we are just like you. We are petty. We are self-seekers. And we will sue each other if we can get an advantage. So the Apostle Paul is, is letting this church know that the way that they've been living has not been setting a good example and a good witness to the world. So in in verse 9, we read these words, chapter 6, verse 1 through 8, he sets us up. He he talks to them about lawsuits. And then in verse 9, we read these words, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he goes and gives a list of examples of lifestyles that would cause someone to forfeit being a kingdom member of the kingdom of God. But how do we connect Verses 1 through 8 to verse 9. Because it seems like maybe Paul has just shifted uh, ideas, but, but because we see the word or in verse 9, we know that's not the case. What Paul is doing is Paul is explaining to the church of Corinth that anyone who lives to their own advantage will not enter into heaven, will not be a part of the kingdom of God. So he's saying you who are suing each other and who are taking advantage of each other, you will not enter into the kingdom of God. But also people who practice this type of lifestyle will not enter into heaven. Paul brings clarity about who will enter into heaven. And we want to look at two things and break this text up into two parts. Part one is this. 
This is the first truth. An ongoing sinful lifestyle is not Christian. An ongoing lifestyle is not, sinful lifestyle is not Christian. He wants to bring clarity to who will enter into heaven. Because the church of Corinth seemed to be just as confused as our churches today. Today, many people think that they will enter into heaven. Paul says, here is some clarity. An ongoing sinful lifestyle is not Christian. And that's what we see in this text in verse 9. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit? To inherit means to possess, to be a part of. The unrighteous will not be a part of the kingdom of God. Now, what does Paul mean by unrighteous? Well, we see in chapter 6, he has used this term a couple times before. In chapter 6, verse 1, he says, When one of you has a grievance about another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? But in chapter 8, we see that Paul uses a, same, a similar word in the Greek that is derived from the word that he used for unrighteous in verse 1 and in verse 9. And he uses the word wrong. In verse 8 it says, but you yourselves are wrong and defraud one another. Another way of saying that you yourselves are unrighteous. So what does it mean to be unrighteous? To be unrighteous means to, to not be a follower of Jesus. To not have Jesus' righteousness cover a person. It literally means in his text to be a wrong or evil doer. Paul says that the wrongdoers, the, the, the evil persons, will not inherit the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God, in essence, is this. It is life with God under his rule, reign, and care. It is life with God. Under his rule, reign, or care. It is a spiritual dimension that a person enters into when they put their faith and their trust in Jesus. The kingdom of God is both present and not yet. Meaning that people can be a part of God's kingdom now. When Jesus came into the earth, Mark chapter 1, verse 14, the Bible says that he came preaching that the kingdom of God is near. Life with God under his care, under his reign, under his rule is near. It is here in me. So we, as Christians, we are part of that kingdom. There's only two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God and there's the kingdom of Satan. But there's another sense in which the kingdom of God is, is not fully here yet. The Bible speaks of one day where the kingdom of God will fully be ushered in when Jesus comes back for his church. That his kingdom will be complete. Paul says, you ought to know, you ought to know that the unrighteous, those who don't know Jesus, those who live life to their own advantage and not according to the way that God has prescribed and the pattern that he has called us to in the Bible. Those who live in that way will not inherit the kingdom of God. And for us, it's like, okay, they won't be in heaven. They won't inherit the kingdom of God. But what I want you to understand is what you forfeit and what you lose by not being a part of God's kingdom. If you could just close your eyes for a second. Just relax. Oh, there's a lot on your mind, but just close your eyes for a second and just relax. Take a deep breath. I want you to imagine that you are at a beach. If you don't like beaches, imagine you're somewhere else <laughs> that represents peace. And I want you to imagine the sun on your face. It's not too hot. It's not overwhelming. It is perfect. And I want you to imagine the sound of waves coming in to the shore. I want you to imagine that, that those things that's been on your mind this week, they're no longer an issue. They've all been solved. Your debt, your relationship issues, your insecurities, they're all gone. 
And I want you to imagine that you are being overwhelmed with a sense of peace because all your problems are solved and you are in a place of refuge. I want you to open your eyes. That feeling that just overtook you, that fantasy of being in a place of utopia, pales in comparison to the coming kingdom that God is going to bring. The Bible says that one day Jesus is coming back and he is ushering in a kingdom where there is no more trouble, no more tears, no more cancer, no more arthritis, no more sin, no more worries. And he says that in that day that there will be an overwhelming presence of peace because he will be there. Paul says in Romans chapter 14 that the kingdom of God is a kingdom of righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. Those who do not know Jesus, those who live life according to their own advantage, they forfeit an eternal peace. Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous, they will not possess or inherit the kingdom that is to come. So who will make it into heaven? Paul says, it's those who are righteous, not unrighteous. Then Paul goes on, and now he seeks to define even more explicitly about who will not enter into the kingdom of God. He seeks to define it, and he seeks to to, to put it at the forefront of the the church at Corinth. So he's already made it clear that those who are suing each other and taking advantage of each other won't make it in, not just because of their action, but because of their hearts. See, our actions flow out of our heart. It flows out of what we worship. If someone is habitually seeking to take advantage of someone else, They are not going to make it into the kingdom of God because that's who they are. They are a self-seeking person. Jesus said for those who are going to follow him, they must what? They must deny self. They they live a life that is, is constantly picking up their cross and that is following after him. So he seeks to bring even more clarity. And in this list, he gives us two categories of people, two categories of sin. The first category is sexual sin. And the second category is social sins. Sexual sin and social sin. And with these categories, what he's saying is people who practice, who practice and habitually sin in these ways, they don't belong to the kingdom of God and they won't enter in because of who they are, because of who they are. So he presses in on two categories, and the first is sexual sin. And the reason I think that he presses on sexual sin, and especially in the book of Corinth, really heavily, we see that he's going to do this even more in chapter 6. We see that in chapter 5 he lists a similar list. Is because the church at Corinth was living very worldly lives. And people were saying that they were Christians, but yet they were still uh, worshiping idols and specifically committing the same sins of uh, sexual sins that they were committing before they came to know Jesus. The church at Corinth was confused about their sexuality. And Christians were saying, yeah, I follow Jesus, but they were not coming under the lordship of Jesus as it pertained to sex. So Paul wants to be clear and he wants to to let the church of Corinth know if if you are habitually practicing sexual sin, you are not, probably not a Christian. And he wants to bring clarity that a person who looks back over their life and is just habitual and intentional sexual sin have never given their life to Jesus. So that's the first category that he deals with. He says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immoral. What is sexual immorality? Sexual immorality 
is any sexual misbehavior or behavior outside of the covenant of marriage. And that is a catch-all phrase that can deal with pornography or fornication or, or lust in any way. And then he goes on, nor idolaters. What is an idolater? An idolater is someone who worships something or someone other than God. It means that they put something or someone before God. That's their way of living. God is not first, God is second. It can be sports, it can be a car, it can be a job. When God calls us to come to him, he calls us to accept him as Lord and to make him first in our lives. Second, nor, a third, I'm sorry, nor adulterers. What is an adulterer? An adulterer is a person who goes outside of their marriage for sexual satisfaction. It's one who cheats on their spouse. And here, with this term, Paul means this in a sense of a, a sexual sense, but it also can mean, uh, it also can cover, I believe, even just an emotional, deep relationship with someone outside of your marriage, of the same sex or, or even of a different sex that's romantic. Nor men who practice homosexuality. So he says, nor men who practice homosexuality. And here, this term that's used in the Greek is, is two words that actually refer to a person who is uh, uh, practicing homosexuality in a passive way and in an active way. So he says, these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we stay in a broken world, in a, in a society that's so confused about sexuality. And for those who are entangled in sexual sin and who are practicing sexual sin and who have made up their mind that this is the way that I'm going to live and God is going to accept me as a Christian and one day I'll be in heaven, Paul says that's not true. But Paul doesn't just deal with sexual sin here. He deals with social sin. He says it goes beyond sexual sin. It's also social sins. Look at verse 10. Nor thieves nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit, will possess heaven. It's bringing clarity to the church of Corinth. So what does he mean when he says nor thieves? A thief is someone who steals from another. Nor the greedy. A greedy person is a person who is never satisfied, who always wants more. Nor the drunkards. A drunkard is a person who we call an alcoholic. A person who is, lives their life habitually giving themselves over to alcohol or to substance. Nor revilers. What is a reviler? A reviler is a slanderer. He says a person who has lived their life constantly putting down others, gossiping and slandering others. Nor swindlers. What is a swindler? A swindler is a, is a person who is a crafty thief. Like a white-collar crime. They have become experts uh, in cheating people out of possessions and money. Paul says they will not inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul here is explaining to the church at Corinth that anyone who lives to their own advantage will not inherit the kingdom of God. Anyone who has an ongoing sinful lifestyle where they have embraced the sin as being their pet sin and says that God is okay with it is not a Christian. Now I just want to key in at this point on one specific sin because it is such an issue right now in our culture. And that's the sin of homosexuality. Homosexuality is a sin like any other sin. The Bible always, or normally I should say, groups homosexuality in a list of sins of abundance, like we see here. And as Christians, we want to be mindful of that and not see homosexuals as as being one way and everyone else being another way. No, everyone is in the same position 
they're lost. They're lost. Now, a person who says that they are a Christian and they're a homosexual, according to the Bible, according to the Bible, that is a contradiction and it's impossible. A person cannot be a practicing homosexual and be a Christian. Just like a person cannot be a practicing fornicator. Fornication is having sex outside of marriage. And intentionally practicing a sin and be a Christian. Why? Because as Christians, a sin does not define us. When we embrace a sin and say, this is who I am. I am a gay Christian. I am a murdering Christian. We are not following Jesus. Jesus has come and he has given us power over sin. We are no longer slaves of sin, Paul says in Romans chapter 6, but we are slaves of righteousness. Now, we still struggle with sin. So a person can have a same-sex attraction and be a Christian. God can deliver you from homosexuality. When you come to know Jesus, you come and say, Jesus is now Lord of my life. I agree with Jesus that sin is bad and that God hates sin. And now I'm trusting that Jesus is going to make me to hate sin more. And I'm no longer embracing that lifestyle, embracing that sin. But now I'm embracing holiness and I'm running towards Jesus. But a person who identifies himself and say, I'm a gay Christian, they're not walking with Jesus. Just as a person who says, I'm a blank Christian or I'm anything Christian and and who is clinging on to that identity is not a Christian. So Paul says, anyone who practices these sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. And this is really challenging for us today because of the the gay rights movement. Um, We see time after time now where Christians who speak up and say, hey, I'm for traditional marriage, they are being ostracized and, and seen as being bigots and not loving. But no, we say that about any sin. God is against any sin. And we love the sinner. I love homosexuals. I love adulterers. I love thieves. I I love murderers. We, We hate that they are entangled in that sin, but we love that person because they are our neighbor. So homophobia is is not glorifying the God. Looking at someone who is struggling with a sin or in a lifestyle and hating them is not bringing honor to God. No, we love that person and we embrace that person and we engage that person. I love my gay friends. But I want to be clear with them that one who embraces that is not, should not expect to be in heaven because God's word has made it clear. These sexual sins are condemned by God because God has created a divine order. God has created a a divine order. He's created one man to be with one woman for life. He has defined marriage in a specific way in order so that humanity would flourish, in order that the family would flourish. And any time we get out of his divine order and we seek to be self-seeking, pain is going to happen. So God is not condemning these sins and sexual sins because he's a killjoy and because he doesn't want you to enjoy what he's created and to embrace your sexuality. No, he is giving us an alternative and a a different way of living that will protect us from pain and that will give us more joy. We experience more joy when we are in God's divine design. God created marriage to be between one man and one woman, and he created within men and women a diversity in creation, that they complement each other. And the family unit in life works best when it is according to that divine order. 
So, first point that Paul points out is, is that an ongoing sinful lifestyle is not Christian. If you are engaged in habitual sin, in a habitual lifestyle, and you say that you are a Christian, Paul says you need to examine yourself because that's not Christianity. Point two, a Christian has a testimony of transformation. A Christian has a testimony of transformation. Look at verse 11. He says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. He says, and such were some of you. Paul points to the fact that a Christian has a testimony of transformation. He's telling the church of Corinthians that that some of you were living in sexual and social sin. You had embraced that style of living because that's who you were. You were unrighteous. You were by your nature a wrongdoer. You were under the curse of Adam. Sin had decayed you. It had totally depraved you, the way that you thought, the way that you spoke, the way that you reasoned, what you believed was all affected by sin. You were an enemy of God. He says, but such were some of you. There is a contrast between a person who, in in our lives, of what we once were and what we are now if we are a Christian. A Christian is a person who has experienced change. A Christian is a person who has experienced change. And it is a a clear change. It is a change that becomes more evident as our lives go on. Some people experience an instantaneous change where when they come to Jesus, all of a sudden that main sin issue is no longer a struggle, and they say, I had victory from that day. But for most people, it is a progressive growing. We begin to have victory But we begin to learn how to fight and how to hate that sin and how to put that sin to death continuously and daily. Jesus said, you pick up your cross daily. Have you experienced that change? It's playoff season. And we know LeBron James and the Heat are seeking to win their third championship. But... LeBron James of today is different from the LeBron James of four or five years ago because we know that LeBron James five years ago was with a different team. He wore a different jersey. He was a Cleveland Cavalier. And we know that one day he had a big press conference and he told the media that he has decided to take his talents to South Beach to become a member of the Miami Heat. He changed teams. Now, LeBron James still has some memories about being in Cleveland. And there's some things that he probably preferred being in Cleveland, maybe more than being in Miami. And there's some things that draws his heart back to Cleveland. But the fact of the matter is, he's no longer Cavalier. He belongs to the Heat. Paul is saying, you all were on a different team. The jersey that you wore were these sins. You loved these sins. You embraced these sins. But now you're a part of a different team. And though that old team, that old man, that old way of living is still a very real temptation and a struggle, it is not what you embrace and run to freely. But it's what you fight against and you surrender over to Jesus. You say, Jesus, the same sex attraction is getting to me. Help me, Jesus. This desire to lie and to cheat is getting to me. Jesus, free me. It's interesting that Paul says, but such were some of you. What's glorious about this text is that the person who is writing this text was probably the worst offender of all before he met Jesus. 
Paul knows what it's like to have a I once was testimony because Paul was a murderer and he was a religious man. He was a, a Pharisee. He was religious, but he did not have a transformed heart by Jesus. So he's not writing this as a word of condemnation, as a, a, a word to make them feel guilty. But he's writing them this as a testimony about how God can transform someone and, and turn their lives around. And in this sanctuary, we have people who know. Who say, I used to be this. I used to love this. My life used to revolve around this sin. But something happened. What happened? He says, but you were washed. But you were washed. This word washed is also used in Titus chapter 3. And it means that you were regenerated. In other words, you were recreated. You were made new. It says, but. Every Christian should have a but. Ephesians chapter 2. But God being rich in mercy. God intervened and he washed you. The Holy Spirit came into your dead heart and gave you life and desires. To run after Jesus. There's a movie called Slumdog Millionaire. And uh, I hadn't seen it in a while, so I can't necessarily recommend it to you. Don't remember if there's some the inappropriate parts, all right? But uh, back in the day, it was definitely my fav- one of my favorite movies. I just loved the whole storyline. But in the movie, uh, this little boy is in an outhouse, and he's going to the restroom. And he hears people shouting because his favorite action hero has just come to town. And his brother pushes him into the outhouse, locks him in. And there's no way out for him to be able to see his action hero who has just hit the town. And this is in India. So all these little boys are running towards this action hero and saying his name. And and everybody is, is chanting for him. And the only way out for this little boy is for him to jump into the waste and to swim through waste and to find a way out. And he swims through this waste and he's smelly and he has a piece of paper to get an autograph from his favorite action hero. And everybody's looking at him, run to his action hero, filled with waste. And he's just smiling as he runs to him. The action hero looks at him like, really? Signs his autograph. When I think of this statement, you were washed, that picture gives me a gospel image of what it was like for us when we came to Jesus. Can we be real? The Bible says that our sin is waste. In fact, it says that our righteousness, our good deeds to God before we know Jesus is as a filthy rag. But when Jesus summons us, when Jesus called us to come to him, we ran to him. He drew us to himself and we were covered with waste. And Jesus didn't just simply sign an autograph for us and say, here, you're now a follower of me. But he embraced us and he washed us and he cleansed us and all of that filth and all of that dirt and all of that shame. And that stench of sin came off. He says, come to me all ye who are weary and I'll give you rest. He goes on and says, and you were sanctified. What does it mean to be sanctified? To be sanctified means to be set apart. He says, You were one way, loving your sin, loving your waste. But I I drew you to myself. God washed you, and then he sanctified you. He he set you apart. He put you on a different team. And and what a picture. This is a, a great picture of baptism. When we celebrate baptism, we celebrate that a person was lost. That to the best of our ability and what we can recognize, this person was living a a sin, a life of unrighteousness. 
But God came into their life and he rescued them and he set them apart. And that's what baptism represents. It represents that we now believe that that this person has been heart has been made new by God. That's what it symbolizes when they go into that water, that the old man has died and that the new man has risen. Behold, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, you are a new creature, a new creation. The old has passed away. The, the new has come. A Christian is a person who has experienced the transforming power of God and who, does no, who no longer identifies and habitually, intentionally practices sins, but who surrenders to Jesus and runs to him as Lord and Savior. You were justified. It says not only were you sanctified, but you were justified. What does it mean to be justified? To be justified means to be declared righteous. It means to be declared right with God. We are declared right with God because of what Jesus did for us on Calvary's cross. Jesus died in our place so that we could take his place, so that we can be a part of the family of God. There was a great substitution. Our sin was laid upon him and his righteousness was imputed to us. We receive his righteousness. And though we still struggle with sin and fall to sin, when God looks at us, he doesn't see us in that manner of our old way, but he sees us covered with the blood and the robe of righteousness that Jesus gave to us. That's what it means to be justified. It means to be declared right with God. You were washed took the waste off of you. Though we still smell with a a stench of waste, we are being renewed. You were sanctified. You were set apart. And we celebrated, he says, the fact that you were set apart through baptism. And you were justified. God declared you his beloved son, his beloved daughter, his beloved child, no matter what list you were in. The list no longer matters to God. Because that list doesn't define you. The blood of Jesus now defines you. So glad that God rescues former thieves, former perverts, former liars, and he does so with a violent grace. Sometimes to rescue us, he deconstructs us. He brings us to our wit end. He allows us to hit a wall. For some of us, that's how we came to Jesus. We tried it our way over and over and over again, and we got to a place where we believed that life was worthless, and then he had someone speak the good news of Jesus into our life, and he began to reconstruct us and and rebuild us. It's important as we celebrate Mother's Day, mothers, that you... That you not live in shame about where God has brought you from. Mothers, it's important that you tell your testimony to your children about what you once were and what you are now. Your child needs to to know that you weren't always in church wearing the cute dress that you have on. That you always didn't have the wisdom that you have now. That you always weren't on your knees praying. That you always didn't have your Bible open over a cup of coffee in the morning. Now, you don't have to share all the details, but your child needs to know that there once was a time when you were identified by a sin and identified with a sin. But the mercy of God came in and transformed you. In that year one, you still didn't look like you do today. In year two, you still didn't look like you do today. In year three, you didn't look like you didn't do today. And ten years later, you may not have looked like that this was a process, but, but God is committed to you. He is committed to sanctifying you, to making you look more like Jesus. And, and sometimes he has to do that by, by leading you to sorrow and leading you through pain and, and leading you through sickness and leading you through trials and, and leading you through bad relationships and allowing you to bump your head. But, but you're able to say, even after day one, I once was, but now I am. Because God begins to do a work in you. Embrace your testimony. 
Share your testimony with your children. Remember that you once were where they are and love them with a, a grace, with the same grace that God has loved you. As Jesus said in Luke 6, be merciful for your Father in heaven is merciful. It was God's kindness that drew us to repentance. And it is your kindness and your love that's going to draw your child to repentance. So speak to that child with the same clarity that Paul spoke to the church of Corinth. Let them know those who live a certain way will not inherit the kingdom of God, but that we serve a God who is filled and full of grace. Finally, he says these words. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What I love about the way Paul closes is he doesn't close with a generic. He doesn't close by speaking of a generic God and using a generic term. In this verse, he closes by pointing us to a triune God. The Trinity is in this verse. The doctrine that there is one God, God is three person, each person is fully God, is compacted down to one verse. He says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. How? By God? No. He says, I don't want to be generic in using God's name. I want to be specific to let you know that there is three persons who is one, who is working in your life. You're justified in the name and the power, the character of Jesus, the Lord. And by the Spirit of our God, God the Father. The way that we change is not by us pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. It's not by us leaving this place and saying, I'm in this category, I've just got to try harder. It's not in us running to a self-help book. The way that a person's life is transformed and changed is through the power of a triune God, Father. Because the Father has predestined and calls us to himself through his Son who gives salvation. It's because the Holy Spirit comes into our heart and changes out a heart of stone for a heart of flesh and woos us and draws us to himself. So, real impact, real change only happens when we put our faith and trust in the God of the Bible, not Allah, not Buddha, not Confucius, not Elijah Muhammad, not Oprah. But Jesus. I just want to challenge those who don't know Jesus here today. You're here today and you don't know Jesus. You say, you know, one of the reasons why I'm not a Christian is because they're hypocrites. Most Christians I know talk about Jesus, but they live the same way as I do or worse. Today I want to point you to this text and to show you that that is not what a Christian is. We sin and we fall short, but that is not what marks us. Paul tells us that a Christian is a person who has been tra- is being transformed from their sinful traps. Not someone who cherishes their sinful traps. But second, I want to warn you that that is not going to be an excuse on the day of judgment. God is going to hold you accountable by whether or not you've put your faith and trust in Jesus. In Jesus. A person who goes to church is no more a Christian than a, than a bicycle is a car because it's in a garage. What makes a person a Christian is not their religious activity, but that they've been transformed by God's grace, by his undeserved favor. And you need to run to Jesus and stop looking at who's around you and what they're doing or what they're saying or what they're not doing, but look at your own self and see that you are a sinner in need of a Savior and that you are full of waste and and covered with sin. But Jesus 
if you repent and turn to him, will embrace you in your sin and wash and cleanse you. You need Jesus. Second, to believers. I want to encourage you as we look at this text, there may be a temptation for us to try to make a list of who's in the kingdom of God and who's a Christian and who's not. And that's not what we're supposed to do. We're not supposed to look at people and try to put them in heaven by what we say, but rather, if we know a person is claiming to be a Christian and their life is habitually identified with an outward sin, whatever that may be, and they haven't embraced that as being okay, our job is to do what Paul does here, and that's to seek to give clarification. With gentleness and love to to number one, make sure that that's not us, that we're not identifying with the sin and saying it's okay, but then to go to that person and to remind them that a Christian is a person who has been transformed and who has a testimony that Jesus changes. So we ought to go lovingly to our brothers and our sisters and to remind them that God has given us a but God testimony. And we ought to pray for it. We ought to pray for them. Not talk about them, but pray for them. You know, there's a, a video that, uh, there was a, a situation that, that came out that hit the news about a, a 10-year-old boy who got kidnapped. I'm not sure if you saw this. A 10-year-old boy gets kidnapped, and while he's in the assailant's car for three hours, he sings gospel. He sings a song, every praise is to our God. Just keep singing. And this kidnapper got so annoyed with the fact that he was singing gospel music that he released him. He was praising God, and he was released from his kidnapping. The gospel, in some ways, freedom. Maybe you're here today and you're in bondage and there's some sin that's just overwhelming to you that has taken over and you say, yeah, but, but I was born this way. I want to encourage you and let you know that the gospel of Jesus Christ can free you. That the blood of Jesus washes you. That when you surrender to Jesus and say, this sin is too big for me, I need you to take over my life, I need you to empower me, that Jesus, I need you to save me, that Jesus will save you. He says, if you confess with your heart, with your mouth, and believe in your heart that God is raising from the dead, that you shall be saved. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that will release you from Satan's grip. We all were kidnapped by Satan. But God, if you're a Christian, he freed you. God is in the business of transformation. He takes the trash of our past and he turns it into, the tr- into his treasure. He takes our brokenness and he turns it to his testimony. Let's pray. Father, we thank